So welcome back, everybody. Welcome to Spiritual Psychotherapy, episode 15. Um, looking forward to a fun class. Participate as much as you like. Um, so we'll start off with some Eastern stuff, and we have some good stuff uh, continuing with the Zohar, uh, with the different letters that are approaching HaKadosh Baruch Hu and asking to be uh, beginning the Torah. But before we do that, let's do a little bit of Alan Watts stuff, because I think this is really interesting. Uh, he says, once upon a time, there was a Zen student who quoted an old Buddhist poem to his teacher, which says, the voices of torrents are from one great tongue. The lines of the hills are the pure body of Buddha. Isn't that right? He said to the teacher. It is, said the teacher, but it's a pity to say so. What does that mean to you? Things are better left unsaid. Yes. In a, in a way, when you put words to something, you reduce it. And, and I think this is something that I just want to keep reminding us as we go along in this process is I'm a guy that loves to indulge in words. I enjoy talking like nobody's business. Uh, but I have to realize, and, you know, I thank God I've had more time to meditate recently. They canceled my clinic this morning and yesterday morning. So I got pretty lucky. I hope the neurology patients are doing okay, despite the cancellations. But bottom line, uh, you know, just having this experience of being able to have more time just to sit in silence in the sunlight is very different than times where I'm, you know, chugging along, chugging along, chugging along. So I notice when I have that thought of, wow, this is amazing. I need to be able to let that thought go as well. Or this kind of thought of, the voices of torrents are from one great tongue. The lines of the hills are the pure body of the Buddha. Like this feeling of, of, wow, this is all so amazing. Let that thought go too. And just be present with awareness, with this ineffable, unspeakable experience. And that's the reality that you want to taste. You have to kind of get past your own obstacles that you're setting up for yourself. So uh, Alan Watts says here, it would be, of course, much better if this occasion were celebrated with no talk at all. And if I address to you in the manner of the ancient teachers of Zen, I should hit the microphone with my fan and leave. I love that. Some, you know, some people would come to the lecture and uh, instead of giving the lecture, what would this Zen master do? He would come, he would, and then he would leave. And that would be the whole thing. And he would surprise everybody and they would get the message from that. But I somehow have the feeling that since you've contributed to the support of the Zen Center, he says, an expectation of learning something, a few words should be said. Even though I warn you that by explaining these things to you, I shall subject you to a very serious hoax. Because if I allow you to leave here this evening under the impression that you understand something about Zen, you will have missed the point entirely. Because Zen is a way of life, a state of being that is not possible to embrace in any concept whatsoever. So that any concepts, any ideas, any words that I shall put across to you this evening will have as their object showing you the limitations of words and of thinking. So again, here's the beauty of this type of speaking is there's a humility in the words themselves where the words point out their own limitation. And any other type of speaking in which the words try to make it like they are the truth those words are not really true. And you you know, you know, could go in circles with this because like the paradox of what I just said, like if I say this sentence is false, well, is that sentence true or false? Because if you say it's true, then it's false. If you say it's false, then it's true, but it's also false. You know, you, you can't get around that. So you have to be, you know, you have to kind of be listening with two different ears 
with one ear, listen exactly as it's being said, and with the other ear, realize these words are just pointing you in a certain direction. Um, let's see if there's anything else here that I wanted to quote. Um, he says, so it is then that if I may put it metaphorically, Zhuang Zhao said, the perfect man employs his mind as a mirror. It grasps nothing. It refuses nothing. It receives but does not keep. And another poem says of wild geese flying over a lake, the wild geese do not intend to cast their reflection. And the water has no mind to retain their image. In other words, this is to be, to put it very strictly into our modern idiom, this is to live without hang-ups. The word hang-up being an almost exact translation of the Japanese bono and the Sanskrit klesa, uh, ordinarily translated worldly attachment, although that sounds a little bit, you know what I mean, it sounds pious. And in Zen, things that sound pious are said to stink of Zen. So the point is, it's not trying to stink of itself. It's not trying to sound all righteous and pious. It's just trying to say it as it is. And the mind should be like this lake that's totally reflective. And when it reflects the geese, it doesn't have a hang up about reflecting the geese. It reflects the geese for as long as they're up there. And then it lets them go. The beauty that I'll, that I'll give you here is that I don't think there's any choice in the matter. I think once you really get down to it, any thought that comes into your mind is already that way. It already is the case that it comes and it goes. The problem becomes the so quote-unquote problem because in a sense there are no real problems. It's, it's just the way we think about it. But when we feel that we have problems, when does this occur? As the Chinese would say, it's nyan nyan nyan. <laughs> I love saying that. It means thought, thought, thought. It's when thought is followed by thought, is followed by thought, is followed by thought. Because those thoughts could become unhealthy because they never lead to just being present. But I would say more of a healthy thought is a thought that passes away on its own and allows for a presence of mind right after. So that's what we're looking for in meditation is not to eliminate thoughts, but for the thoughts to be like the geese upon the lake. And the thought comes and it goes. And then it leaves time for the lake to just reflect the pure blue sky. And that's kind of what we're all looking for. Um, and I think that's that's really just a beautiful way of, of experiencing the world. Instead of seeing the world constantly cutting the world into pieces. And, you know, the, so I spoke this past Shabbat. We really had a great time in uh, the first Minyan here in Sephardic. And we spoke about um, the, the the different levels of the Mishkan and how the Mishkan is could be thought of really like levels of meditation. And I don't want to get into too many of the details, but suffice it to say, the three Hevdelim, the three separations that occur in Bereshit between Or and Hoshech, light and dark, between uh, you know Mayim and Mayim, between the upper waters and the lower waters, and finally, the me'orot, these are the three times it uses the lehavdil, me'orot being the luminaries and having to do with time. So it's energy, space, and time. The three demarcations in the Mishkan that are demarcated by kirubim, right, that are demarcated by these cherub-like beings, they each signify a passing through or a leveling up in which you kind of transcend these concepts of time, space, and energy. Time being the outermost value. Don't go into the Kodesh, into the sanctuary, 
into the Mishkan at any time, and you go inside and there's no more luminaries outside, you don't know what time it is, it's like Vegas. <laughs> I hope nobody ever records that and, you know, sends that out. Um, and then finally, you know, you go into the Kodesh, into the Kodesh itself, and you see, and what do you have to pass? You have to pass through the parochet, that, that separatory, uh, that separation curtain. There's also Kedobim on that, right? Just like they were on the Yediot, on the outermost covering. And now you're entering this zone of transcending space because the Aron itself did not take up space according to the Midrash and according to the Peshat about like, how could it be that it's 20 Amot exactly and 20 Amot in the Kodesh HaKodashim? It doesn't really make sense. And finally, getting into the uh, the Ark itself, you're transcending energy because the Torah is like Or and the Hachamim compared to black fire on white fire, almost like this primordial energy that was a mixture of light and dark, which we don't understand, that was somehow separated out during Bereshit. Now, why am I telling you all of this? Well, Rabbi Sassoon was of the opinion that these different levels of uh, of the Mishkan represent different levels of meditation. And basically, as you're meditating, you're 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 going through each room and learning how to transcend these things. So you're getting so much in the moment that you're entering into the Kodesh. You're fully present in the moment. You go into the Kodesh Kodashim and you're beyond space. You have no conception of here nor there. It's all present in a non-space type of way. Possible to put into words. And then finally, the energy of reality all becomes one. And that's the highest level. So... What we talked about in this class was the connection to Bereshit. And we explained that, you know, we, we know of cherubs of Kirubim in Bereshit, right? In Bereshit, we have these cherubs are guarding the way back to the Etz HaChaim. And they're, they're blocking our path to the Etz HaChaim, to the tree of life. We know the tree of life is like the Torah. And the question is now, all right, so what are these cherubs doing here in the Mishkan? Well, these Kedubim are inviting us in. Now, why are they doing that? Why was it a problem to enter back into the garden? What does it say in the Torah? Because lest men now eat from Etz HaChaim and live forever. Right? And, and it, you know, so what was the problem? Well, when God first created the world, he wanted us to eat from Etz HaChaim, right? He said, Mikol Etz tochel, except, you know, eat from all the trees of the garden, except Etz Hadat. It only became a problem to eat from Etz HaChaim after we ate from Etz Hadad, which means that this is a tremendous lesson about how to enter the Mishkan. It means that if you want to eat from Etz HaChaim, don't eat from Etz Hadad beforehand. So in a sense, when you look at reality and you use, as the Eastern guys will say, you use the sword of the mind or you're cutting reality into separateness, into concepts, into arbitrary definitions, what are you doing? Well, you're eating from Etz Hadad. And if you're doing that, you're never going to be able to eat from Etz HaChaim. The way to undo that is you have to kind of undo your programming that sees everything as separate and defines things with your thinking mind. And instead, just be with what is. Instead of labeling it and naming it, just be present. And that's that's going to lead you towards eating from Etz HaChaim and entering the Kodesh HaKodashim. So I just thought that was really interesting. Um, and that's kind of the, the thing I remind myself during my meditations is 
if I want to enjoy this moment, let me stop eating from Etz Adat. Let me just eat from Etz Hayim and the, the presence of life right now. Um, obviously, there's a lot more to it than that, but uh, that's for another time. Um, any questions so far? Questions or comments? Okay, no problem. So we'll continue now with uh, the Dao De Ching, and um, we'll transition to the Zohar in a minute. So last time we left off, we were talking about, uh, you know, become totally empty, let your heart be at peace, let things flourish, um, and to return to the root is to find peace, to find pieces to, fill one's, to fulfill one's destiny, to fulfill one's destinies, to be constant. To know the constant is called insight. Not knowing this cycle leads to eternal disaster. I thought that was so interesting. And one thing I heard from Thich Nhat Hanh this week, one of my favorite Vietnamese gurus who passed away a few years ago, he says, there is no road to peace. He said, peace is the road. Right? There's no path towards peace. Peace is the path. You have to be peace right now in order to find that peace. You can't, there's no way of getting towards it just invited in right now and i hope that this type of a class will be an invitation and a meditative headspace for you to kind of sink into that um knowing the constant gives perspective this perspective is impartial impartiality is the highest nobility the highest nobility is divine right so this is what it means to eat from ets hadat it means not being partial that's eating from etzah hadat, right? Eating from etzah hayim is being impartial, and it's it's a very difficult thing to digest sometimes, because you know you say how can I be equanimous with all this evil going on, and that's where we always talk about acting without acting, doing without doing, effortless effort. This ironic thing of before I act, I always must first be at peace, and then from that place of peace, notice how I naturally instinctively react and that will if you trust it it'll be towards something good uh but of course you can't really call it good or evil at that point because you're just being with what is uh mike can i uh, make a comment sure please uh, it seems like you're you know trying to to tell us that um this uh, zen philosophy is is um admirable or uh, or something we should strive towards um and you know you're giving us this example with the um it's a dot and it's a chaim but you know and i'm not against you know a zen philosophy or an outlook you know where you try not to take things too seriously and live in the moment and reflect like the uh like the lake however <laughs> i don't think you're you're going to be fighting for justice mm -hmm. and, and changing the world if all you're doing is reflecting and and meditating and just being with one with everything it, it's it's a little it's very pacifist not a little pacifist it, it, it seems like a very pacifist and um uh, non-reactive you know way of, of of living so i mean and and also you know when i look at the um Gan Eden, both of those trees were there. You know, <laughs> both of them were there for a reason. So it's not like only one tree was there, only the Etzachim, the Etzadat was there too. So I think humans have to acquire knowledge. I mean, we're told that we have to acquire knowledge. The Torah wants us 
to to acquire knowledge. Um, mm-hmm. in, in other words, in, to find knowledge of Hashem, you have to acquire knowledge of of His works. You know, I yeah. mean, I'm I'm you know I'm a fan of Rambam in his in his attitude towards knowledge. So I'm just trying to say, like, we shouldn't. I I definitely agree that you could take it overboard and you can get too obsessed with things and and you can ruin your mind by thoughts too many things and you're constantly planning or scheming or thinking about what i did and what has to be done and not focusing on the moment and enjoying the you know and having and maybe taking a look back at your life and different perspectives are very important and being able to shift your your frame i think is very healthy and it can become you know it could be more productive there's a million good things that you can get from meditating and having a zen philosophy but you also don't picture people who do that in you know it really encapsulated Zen philosophy as being very active and being agents of change, yes. you know, which I think is also important. This is a fantastic question. And I think it's, it, it, of course, what everything I'm saying begs this question and I try to address it, you know, but it's, it's very difficult to address, you know, unless you fully state it that way. So thank you for stating it. So one thing I'll say is, you know, the guy I just mentioned, Thich Nhat Hanh, if you look at him as a person, you research his life, he is the ultimate Zen Buddhist. He represents all this stuff and he knows all this stuff and teaches all this stuff and lives this stuff. And yet he marched alongside MLK and he called for peace during the Vietnam War. He, you know, had protesters and he made a bunch of movements and he was very active, very politically active in many different ways. You can look up his life. Super interesting. And the point being that uh, this uh, a distinction between two types of as they call the Buddhas, you have the Pratyega Buddha is the private Buddha. That's the guy who goes off on his own to a mountaintop and he, that's it. He just sits on the mountaintop and he doesn't leave. He stays in his own alignment and is, is satisfied with that. But then you have the Bodhisattva. The Bodhisattva is the guy who once he achieves that enlightenment comes back into society. And from that place of peace, from that place of enlightenment is how he acts. And that doesn't mean he doesn't act. It means he does act, but he's acting from a place of peace. And the 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 point that I try to make to people almost all the time, and this is a question I get from everybody, and I have it myself. It's as follows, which is, don't you realize that even if you intend to do good, so often it could result in something not so good. And obviously that's the best we can do is intending to do good. But when you're acting out of a place of I must do good and I am irked by reality and I'm not okay with the way things are right now, what are you going to very often do? You're going to end up making things worse sometimes. You know, so many wars are fought over trying to make the world a better place. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. I'm not saying don't act, but I'm saying when you do act, meditate for 10 minutes beforehand or an hour or go on a meditation room. Or do something where you you steady yourself and you become so so present with yourself that when you are going to be acting, it's going to be from this place of equanimity and from this place of peace. And, you know, regarding, uh, uh, you know, eating from Etzadat, I think that story is descriptive and not prescriptive, meaning I think it explains the human condition that we found ourselves in right now. It's descriptive, but it's not prescriptive. It's not telling us how we need to be or should be. I'm saying it's telling us how things are right now, how we find ourselves in this place. I actually talked about it on Shabbat, where 
We evolved this cerebral cortex. We evolved this part of our brain that gave us this capability. But when we had only that lizard brain, we were more, you know, like the just present with what is and not, you know, I don't think it's the same as a human that becomes enlightened. But when we were just lizard brains, you know, whatever we were, we were a lot more present. And the 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 blessing slash curse that we get from this etzadat cerebral cortex is this ability to discern and separating reality. But the curse part is that we see only snippets of reality and we don't really see the truth. So my point being, when we understand these ideas, we can, through our meditation, find a way back to that place of understanding truth, find our our way back to that place of being with reality as it is as a whole. And that I believe, you know, I kind of have that faith that it results in better action. It results in a better, more, more beautiful way of living when you are in that equanimous place, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. Thanks. Thanks for the answer. But but great question. It's, I think you, you, you need to ask that question. Otherwise you do end up too passive and that's not definitely not what I want. You know, great question. Um, Okay. So now we'll continue a few more lines with the greatest leader above them. People barely know one exists. Next comes one whom they love and praise. Next comes one whom they fear. Next comes one whom they despise and defy. When a leader trusts no one, no one trusts him. The leader, the great leader speaks little. He never speaks carelessly. He works without self-interest and leaves no trace. When all is finished, the people say, we did it ourselves. So I think this idea of the leader, number one, it is on a practical level. It's kind of telling you how to be kind of like a laissez-faire, a let be, let do, uh, you know, leader in a society, a governor maybe even. I think that's on a practical level. You know, there's a lot of benefits to allowing things to run on their own. And they have this natural order about them. But at the same time, I think this is a metaphor for the Tao. The Tao is this leader, in a sense, that leaves no trace. It speaks and acts effortlessly. But when you look for it, you can't find it. And I always come back to this idea where we say Hashem's humility is that Every time you hear about God's greatness, you hear about God's humility, right? You, you say, wow, how great is God? And God is hiding. You can't find him. And this idea of the Tao as the king that abdicated the throne, I think is exactly that point. It doesn't lord it over them. It doesn't say, look at me and how great I am for having created all of you. Now bow down to me. I think this is a view of God that is just as valuable as the one that we're taught in second grade, right? I think you need to understand wow, you know, there's there's the, the, the humility of God is such that no matter where I look for him, I can't find him. And that's ultimate humility because it's always hiding. But when you're not looking, almost by accident, that's when it's found. And, you know, the, it's funny because you, you mentioned Buddhism. We were mentioning Buddhism. The point of Buddhism is kind of to beat you a little bit, beat your mind, until the point where you totally give up any hope of finding it, of using effort and your ego to find whatever it is you're looking for, to getting to a place almost, almost that can be called, don't care. I give up. That point of I give up is where all the magic happens. But you can't give up until you give up. 
and you can't sketch it. You can't kind of skirt the issue. You can't cheat your way to giving up. You have to genuinely give up. And everybody has their point where they give up during the meditation. But anybody who's meditated seriously will tell you, yeah, my best meditations have been when I gave up all hope of trying to redeem myself or improve myself or anything. And that's the great irony is once you give up, you you kind of get everything from there. One more uh, section and then we'll go to the Zohar. When the greatness of the Tao is present, action arises from one's own heart. When the greatness of the Tao is absent, action comes from the rules of kindness and justice. Right? So all this idea of being moralized at and being told, do this and do that. This is goodness and this is kindness and this is justice. That's important and that's necessary because we're not all you know, able to really act in this way. But it seems the real ideal is if people are acting naturally good. And it's possible that if you instill people with this type of society in which the leader is not imposing upon them, they might find their own natural kindness. If you need rules to be kind and just, if you act virtuous, right, if you act virtuous, this is a sure sign that virtue is absent. Thus, we see the great hypocrisy, right? So that's the problem with, and I know we say, you know, you start off worshiping Hashem with Yirah, and then it goes to Havar. I'm sure you were thinking about that, right? Of course, that's the, the truth of it, and that's the hope, is right? According to your actions, that's where your heart eventually goes towards. But in a way, we're all acting in the beginning. We're acting good, meaning we're not actually good. We're just trying to act out that goodness. But in, in, in reality, that means it's absent. If you're trying to love God, if you're trying to you know, force yourself in a way to be devoted to God, you're not really being devoted to God. You're just you know, acting. You're just doing something in a forced way. Uh, he says, when kinship falls into discord, piety and rights of devotion arise. When the country falls into chaos, official loyalists will appear. Patriotism is born, right? So all this stuff, all this necessity for rules and regulations and, and you know, these ideals and concepts, all that stuff arises when things don't go well. And then he, his final piece of advice that I'll read for you tonight, give up sainthood, renounce wisdom, and it will be a hundred times better for everyone. Throw away morality and justice, and people will do the right thing. Throw away industry and profit, and there will be no thieves. Right? It's, it's the need to try to be good that is creating a lot of our problems. And if we would just allow ourselves to naturally fall into that course, things might go better. All of these are outward forms alone. They are not sufficient in themselves. It is more important to see the simplicity, to realize one's true nature, to cast off selfishness and tempered desire. Right? So the most important thing to really discover who you really are, your true nature, is by stripping away all of this outside stuff, all this noise about how we should be and these morals and and you know, high concepts. So bottom line, the, the thing I don't want you to forget, though, is whatever you've been doing until now is also the Tao. You're trying, in a sense, is in a way still part of the Tao. But when you kind of deviate from the Tao is when you're looking for the Tao. But in a sense, you've had no choice 
but to go in the path of least resistance till now. And from one perspective, you want we could talk about free will a different time, but from one perspective, this is what you've been doing. What you can you have no choice but to do according to the pleasure principle from this perspective. Right? So that should be some solace and say to you, you you've done nothing wrong. It's just that notice that you you're going in this direction and be present with that and you know things will start to actually be more natural for you and and flowing more in a better sense when you do that right so now let's transition to the zohar so any questions up until now or comments okay so we left off last time with the letter sadi where we're going through all the letters of the alphabet from backwards to forwards, right? From the, the last letter, Tav, to the first letter, uh, Bet, you know, Aleph and Bet of the, the, the alphabet. Hey, Baruch Haba. And uh, last time we mentioned the letter Sadi. And we said the letter Sadi is like a noon with a Yod on one side and a Yod on the other side, right? A noon like this, Yod here, Yod there. And I got into a whole discussion last time. So Sadi said, Hashem, you should start the, the Torah with me because I stand for Sadiq and Hashem, you're called the Sadiq. So it's Ra'uy, it's fitting for the Torah to begin with me. And then Hashem said, no, Sadi, you have such a deep secret latent within you that I don't want to reveal this to people already. Because if I were to reveal this to people, it would not be Ra'uy, it almost wouldn't be possible for people to wrap their heads around this from the very beginning of the Torah. So what is this deep secret? Well, the noon is like nekeva. It's this feminine element of God or of the world. It's Shekhinah, right? And the Yod is Yesod. It's Sadiq Yesod Alam. It's the masculine element. And then if you, so that's the, the, the noon Yod dichotomy. And then the two Yods, what are they? They're facing away from each other, just like Adam and Hava were at the beginning of creation. And they became, they become split down the middle. And really, the two, uh, you know, Adam and Eve, Adam and Hava, are really one somehow. Yin and Yang, right, really are one. Good and evil, somehow, really are one. So God is saying, I don't want to talk about this question of dualism or the non-dual from the beginning of the Torah, because what, what's going to happen? We said last time you might end up with Shabbat Tzvi, who is going around doing Averot L'Shem Shamayim, who is saying, let's do evil to create the redemptive capability, because God is both of them. This is something that's so hard to wrap our heads around. If God is the source of everything, how could he be the source of good and evil? God's saying, I don't want people to get stu- you know, to stumble with this, because it's a very easy thing to Take you off the dead. So I read this amazing uh, commentary from the Damkal in a book he wrote, Da'at Tibuno. Oh, yeah. Um, he talks about, he, spe- he mentions a few Pisukim and he explains a lot of the stories behind them. One of them was, uh, Wow, no way. And the context was he was explaining other religions and other philosophies, and he was sort of yeah. explaining what they're lacking and where they're misguided using the Pisukim, right? Yeah. And so he said that back then, I, I don't know exactly which which religion or exactly what it was, but they would see good as being one God and evil being a second God. Zoroastrianism started with. They could have both. 
and he explained that they would see the top part of the body, top part of the body to be good mm-hmm. and the bottom part of the body to be evil. And so that's they would make this distinction between good. And that's why it says, or say shalom uborera, to it's a polemic against all oh, exactly. Yes, exactly. I think that's perfect. And uh, that's why we say in Birkot Shema, when we read the, 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 the blessings for Shema, what are we saying? We're we're what we're quoting all this these different things about Hashem making the daytime and the nighttime because other religions believe there were two gods. And that's another thing that you, that you, you either this is what we said last time, when you're confronted with this, either you have the problem of well, either there's a god and a devil each with, with like equal say in what's going on, or there's one God who also is the source of evil. Either way, evil is presenting this very big problem to us. And, and yeah. Another one was he was explaining mm. so there's a lot of depth to that and there are a lot of interpretations to it. So they're all, they're all true, but the one that he was explaining what I thought was amazing was that people might say um, because the Jews are acting evil, Hashem mm. can't bring Mashiach. Or because this guy's acting this way, Hashem can't do this. Or because Adam ate from the wow. tree, now the final plan can't be fulfilled. But yeah, that Hashem is sort of forced because of our connection with Him, and so that's the idea of En Od Milavado is that there is no plan that can be fulfilled other than His. Mm. No matter which way you go, you'll end up where He always intended. And so it's sort of like all-encompassing, and you know, in, in a way related. Beautiful. I think this is all great. I, my problem is. It, it never you never really can put it into words because it's like all right so then uh you know i guess i guess in a way like if you talk about the holocaust as long as you don't stop the the timeline with the holocaust i guess you can say maybe it led to this maybe it led to that but it's hard to digest justifying evil you know so at the end of the day with our judging mind with the after eating from Adat, we see tovara and there's nothing else we can do but but see it in those terms and I think Hashem, in general, with this letter said, he's like, I don't want to get into it right now. But suffice it to say, we run a big risk when you start teaching people about these dual elements of the world. But I think those those are fantastic comments, Mickey. Thank you. Finally, now, the letter P entered. She said to him, Master of the world, may it please you to create the world by me. For I signify Purkena, the redemption that you will someday bring to the world, also called pedut, right? So it's amazing, deliverance, right? Pedut stands for deliverance. It is fitting to create the world by me. So what do I love so much about all these? Every letter, in a sense, is almost explaining what we just said with the letter Sadi, right? So Sadi itself represents the fact that there's dualism, but somehow they're really one. Somehow really within the, the two is one hiding behind it and it's this experience that you have to have that you only you can have and nobody else can have it for you about how two is really one but every letter so far has said god look how good i am i stand for this thing but then he says not so fast honey you also stand for this other bad thing and letter after letter is confronting this problem that we just mentioned with sadi which is dualism which is you can't have the good without the evil. So Pe is saying, look, I stand for, you know, Purkena, for Pedut, for deliverance and for redemption. What does Hashem reply? You are seemly, but you signify hidden transgression, like a serpent striking, then tucking its head into its body, right? So if you look at the letter Pe, 
in Kitab Ashuri. It's the, the top of it looks like a snake that's kind of hiding in and itself. And it's compared to a person who, when they sin, they take their head and they tuck it into themselves and they put out their hands. And they say, God, please forgive me. And it says here, so one who sins bows his head, stretching out his hands. So bottom line being, you know, again, even where you think something is so good and nice sounding, it also has an underlying not so good element to it. Now, so far, yeah. So that's a great question. I was almost waiting for the word Peshat to come up here. It didn't come up. But that's a great question. It's going to come up now with the, the letter Ayin, with Avon. But it's a great question why Hashem didn't, you know, outright say Pesha, you know, being there. Uh, one quick comment, though. You know, I spoke to my rabbi today, one of my rabbis, about uh, all this, these different midrashim. And he, of course, brought up the very obvious question, which is, if the Torah was originally written in Ketav Ivri, right, in Hebrew script, and this, all these midrashim are based on Ketav Ashuri. They're based on Assyrian script, which is a script that is only, you know, however many, uh, you know, millennia old, and it, it wasn't the way that the Torah was written. Why are we using these as the jump-off point for our midrashim? So my answer was, I don't think this is absolute truth, quote-unquote. I think rather these are almost like an empty canvas upon which the hachamim could express their ideas upon. It doesn't mean that these letters actually have to signify these things. It's just like a thought experiment in order to express deep philosophical truths. Yeah, Mickey. So you're saying that the original Torah was not written in the same way that it's written today? Exactly. And this is agreed upon accepted by everybody everywhere? All the scholars agree with this. The Gemara debates it. But the scholars agree with this. The Gemara brings both opinions. But the point being, don't get lost in, uh-oh, it's not actually how the Torah was written, and these letters are not actually the letters. No, that's not the point. The point is, you're supposed to use this as an arbitrary thought experiment. And as I've mentioned so many times, when it comes to truth, how do you know something's absolute truth? Well, the only real way for you to know something's absolute truth is for you to have a mystical experience in which you experience that thing is absolutely true. And the irony is, well, nothing is, not, no thing, no separate thing can ever absolutely be true, but it can sometimes be a relative truth that leads you towards that absolute truth. I've mentioned this in the past. I think it's a really important idea. And in that sense, it's almost like the absolute truth goes down and grabs the relative truth and lifts it up to its level. That's the experience of entering the mystical experience, entering that absolute truth, is everything reveals itself to have that led you towards that, to have already been part of that absolute truth. That's the way I think about it. So in a sense, these are absolutely true if they lead you towards a mystical experience or towards that, you know, or uh, eventually towards that mystical experience. Now, Ayn. Similarly, Ayn stands for Avon, iniquity. Although she said, I imply Anava, humility, right? The Blessed Holy One replied, I will not create the world by you. She left his presence, right? So she never even had a chance. <laughs> she didn't even get a chance to say, Hashem, please. I said, Anava. No, no, it's, it starts off, of course, Ayn is Avon. You know, and that's that's a funny thing. And also, uh, Avon is the same letters as Anava. There's just a hey. Ah, uh, yes. And it's an anagram. 
Beautiful, hundred percent. Like before you were on a vibe. Exactly, exactly. It's two sides of the same coin. That's the whole thing. The letter Sammach entered. She said to him, Master of the world, may it please you to create the world by me, for by me, Semicha, support exists for those who fall. As it is written, Somech Adonai, right? We say in Teilale uh, David every day. Hashem supports all of those who fall. Hashem replies, he replied, so you are needed where you are. Do not move. If you leave, what will happen to the fallen who depend on you? She immediately left his presence. I thought that was so beautiful and powerful. It's like, Samach, you're pointing out to me why you're, so, you're already so needed where you are. I think this is great because, you know, not everybody could be the CEO of the company. Not everybody could be the leader of every group. But the point is, every member of a functioning group is equally as important. The leader is not the most important per se. You know, it's the same thing as a band. You know, you have the guitarist and you have the bassist and you have the drummer. Everybody is important for what they do. Don't get caught up in, in titles. So Samach was, at the end of the day, very pleased with remaining as the support for those who fall down. And it doesn't have to be the first letter of the Torah. I was satisfied. The letter Noon entered. She said to him, Master of the world, may it please you to create the world by me, for by me you are called Nora, awesome, in praises. By me, the praise of the righteous is called Nava, comely and beautiful. Right? So, uh, Nora and Nava. He replied, Noon, return to your place, for because of you, Samech returned to her place. Depend on her. She returned immediately, leaving his presence. So, be, so, so right, noon and Samech, right? Because why? Noon is the one that is being nofel. So it's in a relationship with Samech. Samech is Somech. It's holding up the noon, which is being nofel. So in a sense, we're saying now, please, you know, be in this relationship. It's okay to be the one who's falling. You're providing for the capability of somebody to lift you up, and that's a holy thing. So even if you're finding yourself sometimes in a victim role, or if you're finding yourself in a vulnerable place, that's not necessarily a bad thing. You're providing other people with the opportunity to do good with you, you know? And I, I, I can't say enough about that. I see so many patients who are so down on themselves or whatever, whatever scenario. If only they knew the the satisfaction and the meaning that I get from helping them. And, you know, not that I want them to be suffering, but now that this is, this is the case, what an opportunity it is for me to help try to relieve them. Exactly. 100%. And it's the opportunity for uh, uh, an act of goodness, hopefully. Came across this quote a while ago. Uh, it says, individually, we are one drop. Together we are an ocean. Uh, I, I'm not sure this man's uh, origin. Yeah, I've I've heard this kind of thing many times, and it's trying to express the idea that you know when the drop leaves the ocean, and then returns to the ocean, <laughs> it's the same kind of thing of uh, talking about our separate consciousness and God consciousness in a way where it's like. At a certain point, we think we're separate from God right now, being our own consciousness. But once we return to God, there's no distinction that can be made. 
And it's the blurring, it's this paradoxical thing of, is my consciousness separate or am I really part of God? And it's neither and it's both and it's all of the above at the same time. And it's the point being, don't try to wrap your head around it. Just experience whatever this consciousness gives you through meditation, through, you know, uh, some religious experience. The letter Mem entered. She said to him, Master of the world, may it please you to create the world by me, for by me you are called Melech, king. He replied, certainly so, but I will not create the world by you, since the world needs a king. Return to your place, you along with Lamed and Kaf, for the world should not be without a king. All right, so not only do we have Mem, but also Lamed and Kaf, because those are the letters of Melech, and it happens to be that Kaf, Lamed, Mem, backwards is Melech. And Ronnie Bennett points that out in his commentary on Psalm 145 because it's an acrostic. It's Aleph Bet Gimel Daladeh, you know, and it skips certain letters. And he has a whole commentary on why that is. But Mem Lamed Chaf is Melech, and it's those are the Pesukim talking all about God's Malchut. If you look in that Mizmor, it's Malchut Echa, Malchut Kol Amim, Shad Echa Bechud and uh, right the previous Pesukim as well. So it's it's uh, purposely reflective of the structure, but. But the, the lesson here is pretty amazing. It's saying, look, we need a king of flesh and blood. Stay in your place of being that. You don't need to begin the Torah. So I think, again, there's the practicality of like, well, we need men on the ground. We need some people to be no fail. We need some people to be the, the physical leader for people to look up to. At that moment, the letter Kaf descended from his throne of glory. And said, Master of the world, may it please you to create the world by me, for I am your kavod, glory, right? So didn't we say we got rid of the letter kaf? Why is it coming back? Uh, good point. Ah, that's the point he makes in the in the commentary. He says the, the final kaf of the word melech was eliminated, but now the regular kaf approaches God. So the kaf sofit is knocked out, but the regular kaf is saying, I want a piece of this, this pie, you know, and he's saying, maybe I'll get a chance. Um, and he's saying, look, Hashem... Uh, I stand for kavod, your kavod, your glory. And it's funny because kaf is represented as sitting on its own throne of, its own kavod, throne of glory. So now what does it say? When kaf descended from the throne of glory, 200,000 worlds trembled. The throne trembled. And all the worlds verged and collapsed. The blessed Holy One said to her, kaf, kaf, what are you doing here? I will not create the world by you. Return to your place for you imply kelaya, destruction, a decree of destruction, like it says in Yeshaya. Return to your throne and stay there. She thereupon left his presence and returned to her place. All right, so this is trying to show that almost the, the double-edged sword of kavod, alongside of having kavod, what do you also have? Kelaya, destruction. That's why the Hachamim say about Moshe Rabbeinu, when he wrote the small Aleph in Vayikra, right, very relevant to this week's parasha, he who runs away from respect and kavon, the glory, the glory and the respect chases after him. The point being that this potential for great glory carries with it the potential for great destruction. So, in a sense, kaf should remain just where it is to keep everything kind of where you know stable. Um, but I think it's a lesson for all of us that if you're if you're seeking glory. Be careful because it's not going to last forever and it's going to hurt like hell when it's gone. You know, just be present and be be satisfied with however little or however much kavod you have. Um, the letter Yod entered. 
She said to him, Master of the world, may it please you to create the world by me, for I am the beginning, beginning of the holy name. Right, Yod Kevavke is fitting for you to create the world by me. He replied, it is enough for you to be engraved in me, to be inscribed in me. My desire culminates in you. You should not be uprooted from my name. He's saying, Yod, you're so holy already. You're already part of my name. You're the first letter of my name. That is already enough. And then that was enough for Yod. The letter Tet entered. She said to master of the world, may it please you to create the world by me. For by me you are called Tov good and upright, as it says in Tehillim. He replied, I will not create the world by you, for your goodness is concealed and hidden within you. Right? So what does that mean? If you look at the letter Tet, it has that, that right corner is kind of going in on itself. Right? It's, it's hiding itself almost. Uh, it's turned inward, like we said. How, uh, as it is written, right? So uh, how do we know that this goodness is hidden within the letter Tet? It says in the Pasuk in Tehilim, how abundant is your goodness that you have hidden away for those in awe of you. Right? So this is talking about that Or HaGanuz LaSaddikim. That Tov, right? That Hashem created, right? Ki Tov. Right? When Hashem created the, the Or in the beginning of creation, before there was any sunlight, it was good. And the Hachamim explained this is Or HaGanuz LaSaddikim, hidden away. Since it is hidden within you, it plays no part in this world that I am about to create, but rather in the world to come. All right, so it's hidden for Olam Haba. And you, Tet, are not for this world. You're so holy, you're for the next world. Furthermore, not only that, because your goodness is hidden within you, the gates of my temple will sink. As written, her gates, Tave'o, have sunk into the, the earth. In, in Megillat Echan, Lamentations, we say, that it's the, you know, the tit is describing the, the temple sinking into the ground. Um, further, facing you is hit. And when you join together, you spell hit, sin. So these two letters are not inscribed in the holy tribes. She immediately left his presence, right? So a couple of points to be made here. Hit and uh, tet obviously are right next to each other. Um, these two letters are actually not found um, in the names of the 12 tribes on you know the the jewels of the breastplate worn by the high priest by the Kohen Gadol the Unim Etumim uh, sorry the not uh, Abne Shoham um, and you know this, these Unim uh, the sorry the Hoshen Mishpat exactly yeah exactly Hoshen Mishpat uh, those those breastplate stones don't have the letters Het or Tet the names of the stones the names of all the twelve tribes. Names yeah, you, you won't find any height or tet. And on the, each stone, one said their Oh, okay. Exactly. And the, the point being, um, you know, the, it, it stands for sin. So that's another reason why it's not mentioned. It's not it's not ra'ui for height or tet to be uh, the beginning of the Torah. The letter Zion entered. She said to him, Master of the world, may it please you to create the world by me. For by me, your children observe the Sabbath that is, as it is written. Zachor, remember the Sabbath day to hallow it. Right? So that's what Zion is. Remember Shabbat. He replied, I will not create the world by you, for you imply war, a sharp sword, and a spear for battle, like a noon. She immediately left his presence, right? The word Zion means a weapon. And it looks like the letter noon, which is like a spear. Noon uh, sofit. So she said, okay, I'm out. The letter Vav entered. She said to him, Master of the world, may it please you to create the world by me, for I am a letter of your name. Right? Yodke Vavke. 
He replied, Vav, it is enough for you and head to be the letters of my name, included in the mystery of my name, engraved and carved in my name. I will not create the world by either of you. Right? So again, the same thing with Yod, also for He and Vav. Uh, they're part of God's tetragrammaton, and therefore they don't need anything more. The letters Dalet and Gimal entered and made the same request. He replied to them as well. And they don't give reasons why. It is enough for you to be with each other, since the poor will never cease from the world, right? Um, and need to be treated kindly, right? So Dal is Dalit, the poor person. Uh, Dalit is poor. Gimal, Gomel, renders goodness to her, right? So the, again, the same thing with Samech Anun. We have also here with Gimel and Dalit, they depend on each other, one giving and one receiving. Gemul Dalim, it says in the Gemara, do not separate from one another. It is enough for one of you to sustain the other. So beautiful. They have these kind of relationships with each other that they're partnering up. They don't need to be more than that. Finally, the letter Bet entered. She said, the master of the world, may it please you to create the world by me. For by me, you are blessed above and below. All right, what does that mean? What does it mean that uh, Hashem is blessed above and below? What does that mean? I, I, I believe it's talking about the line and the line and the connection. Ah, I don't, I don't even think that. That's a great question. So, Bet stands for Beracha. It stands for blessing. And, you know, for, for some reason, this was enough for Hashem to say, hey, you're right. The blessed Holy One replied, who said, indeed, by you, I will create the world. You will be the beginning of creation. I think you're right, Mickey. I was wondering why. The, the letter bet has an upper roof and a lower floor, and it's connected by that line. That's a fantastic point. And somehow that, that is perfect because it's trying to show that when Hashem created the world, He's blessing both the upper world and the lower world. Right? And that represents, like, Bina being on top and Shekhinah being on bottom. Bina creating the upper uh, world and Shekhinah creating this lower world. Um, the, um, yeah, the Baal Shem has a book called Wow, okay, fantastic. What a what a great point. Thank you. That's so important to have you here. Um, the Hakadosh Baruch Hu replied, Hashem replied, indeed, by you I will create the world, you will be the beginning of creation. The letter Aleph stood and did not enter. Right? Aleph is silent. Huh. The blessed Holy One said to her, Aleph, Aleph, why do you not enter my presence like all the other letters? She replied, Master of the world, because I saw all the letters leaving your presence fruitlessly. What could I do there? Furthermore, look, you have given this enormous gift to the letter Bet, and it is not fitting for the exalted king to take back a gift he has given to his servant and give it to another. He's saying, Hashem, you already gave it to Bet. I don't want to steal his thunder. The blessed Holy One said, Aleph, Aleph, although I will create the world with the letter Bet, you will be the first of all the letters. Only through you do I become one. With you, all counting begins and every deed in the world. No union is actualized except by Aleph. Right? This is the secret that we were mentioning with Sadi also. This is the oneness behind all of it. Everything begins and everything is that Aleph. It's that silent Aleph. It's that Tao that can never be found. Right? It's this thing that's always hiding from Kavod. That's who Hashem really is. 
Hashem is really that called them Daka, that silence that Eliyahu learns about on the top of Hara Karmel. Hashem, Hakadosh fashioned high, large letters and low, small letters. Right, so he Hashem created the the two bets right for the first two words of the Torah, Bereshit bara, and then two alephs, Elohim et Bereshit bara, Elohim et Hashemayim et Aretz. Right, letters above and letters below. So the first bet is for the upper domain of reality. The second bet is for the lower domain. The first aleph for the upper domain. The second aleph for the lower domain. So they were all as one from the upper world and the lower world. And this is amazing because it's trying to say there's a unity between the upper and lower worlds. And yet the Bereshit bet is going for Bina, right? It's counting for the upper realms of reality. And the Bara is counting for Shekhinah. So it's trying to show you this reflectiveness between the upper and lower realms that's always been inherent in creation from the very beginning. But just going back to Aleph, I think this is such an important point. Hashem creates the word the world with a bet. It's something that is physically heard. It's a very, you know, it's a consonant. It's something that can be emphasized, a bet, right? And it, like Mickey said, it represents the, the marriage of the upper and lower realms. But the deeper secret. Right, so bet also is two. It also represents dualism, and the world that that we know of is dualistic. It is yin and yang. It is here, not here. Everything is vibrations, right? Everything is the crest of the wave and the trough of the wave. You talk about sound waves, right? You talk about light waves. All waves are exactly that. They're not there. Yin and yang, bet. It all represent. It all requires this dualism, but somehow. Some way, if you can listen to the sound of silence, you can understand the secret of Aleph. Alpha and Omega. Aleph really is the beginning of all and the end of all. And that's why there's this beautiful Midrash that says, all the Aseret HaDiberot are contained, all the Ten Commandments are contained within the First Commandment. And all the First Commandment is contained within the first word of the First Commandment. Right? Anochi. I am. And all the Ten Commandments and all the First Commandment and all, all those things are contained within that Aleph of Anochi. It's a fractal. Everything emerges from that Aleph, from that silence. And if you can understand that oneness, you can see how everything comes out of that. And you're supposed to be led back towards that oneness through your understanding of Bet, through your understanding of the dualism you can try to find the oneness that's hiding behind reality. Baruch Adonai Amen Amen. Azak Baruch.